She had found a listing on Craigslist. It was an old dance studio in the back of a lobby and we went and looked at it. And five months later, SoulCycle was open. And when you really think about kind of what it was that was the origination of SoulCycle, it was Elizabeth and I built it for us. There was something that we really missed and we noticed the whole and we built it for ourselves. And, that, and that's really where it came from. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Julie Rice is an entrepreneur best known for co-founding the fitness phenomenon SoulCycle. Rice's life work has been about building community, and she served as co-CEO at SoulCycle from 2006 to 2015, before serving as a partner at WeWork from 2017 to 2019. She is currently the co-founder of Peoplehood. Peoplehood makes the world a more connected and empathetic place, one conversation at a time. She's a board member of the Public Theater and Weight Watchers. I started out by asking Julie about her influences when she was growing up. I really never, ever thought I would be an entrepreneur. It was absolutely a second career for me. I grew up in Westchester in New York. I had a typical suburban childhood. There was nothing really wildly uh, different about the way that I grew up. The only thing that I can say was that uh, very early on, I became very much in love and involved in theater. I got the lead in my first grade play, and that was a real seminal moment for me. It was a walk with Mr. Peeps, and I was Mr. Peeps. And, and, from, then on, and from then on, everything was about the stage. But I always really had a love for theater and production and people and sort of the nuance of characters. Uh, as I grew up, I, I had no aspiration to be an actor, but the entertainment business was always my dream. And I think that what I learned in Hollywood was really about how people could be brands. I worked for a great talent manager, Benny Medina. Uh, he's he's, he's uh, of Jennifer Lopez fame. Yeah. And um, when I was working for Benny, it was really a very interesting time in the entertainment business. The internet had just become a thing. And we were really beginning to understand how people could be recording stars, actors, have online businesses, how they could create fragrance, clothing, and really become a brand or an industry themselves. And Benny was really great at that. And I got to really watch people become brands, which was very interesting for me. And I think when we were building SoulCycle, I really took a lot of that nuance with me. I always really thought of SoulCycle as a character. I wrote all the copy and the brand voice, and I always would think about what she would say. Uh, what she would be like, what her thoughts would, would be about, you know, having to work out, if that was pleasurable or painful. And so I, I really do think that my love of the theater, my study of characters, and the way that those turned into brands for me was very influential. Now, how come after you got that role as Mr. <laughs> Peeps, did you not want to act? Did you want, it sounded like you wanted to be in entertainment, but in first grade, it sounded like you may have wanted to be an actress. 
you know, I had real dreams until I was in about eighth grade, but I'm also a very self-aware person. And I began to understand who around me was talented and who was not. <laughs> and although I was an amazing Mr. Peeps, I think I was better suited to be the wind, uh, the wind underneath other people's wings. Right. And you understood that, I guess, uh, early on. And, and just, of course, I have to ask, being from Westchester myself, yeah, where did, yes, where did you grow up in Westchester? I grew up in Ardsley. Ah. My, parents, my parents still live there. How about you? I grew up in Edgemont. So, uh, you know, Edgemont, Ardsley, big for all you podcast listeners who are listening in like California. It's like the big high school uh, rivalry. My cousins all went there. And but that's so funny. So you had the lead in seventh grade. OK, Mr. Pete, I'm going to have to do some more research now. Yeah, yeah, it was it was really <laughs> it'd be hard to find it online. Sure. <laughs> not, the Times Critic was busy that night. <laughs> yeah. So so tell me. There's so much good stuff here. I love how you use your theater background and talking about SoulCycle as a brand, because I think really SoulCycle and what it became or why it became wildly successful was because it was, it felt like a brand or a character or someone, there was just a brand ethos when at that time there really, there wasn't much of that with brands. But I want to know how did the idea come about and what made you start SoulCycle? Absolutely. So I actually moved back from Los Angeles. I had worked in the movie business there for about 10 years and I moved back to the West Coast. I was getting married and I wanted to be near my family who still lived in Westchester. <laughs> and when I came back to New York City, really no exercise the way that I had experienced it in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, exercise was lifestyle, it was social, it was community. It was what you did in your free time. For me, it was really the biggest part of my social life. And it was what I really did for myself. And when I came back to New York at the time, there were big box gyms. Everybody went there to burn calories, compete with the person next to them and check it off of their list. And I just kept thinking it was something that I really missed. And I kept thinking, gosh, there's got to be something more. There is really something missing from this very busy New York life. We only have an hour in the day that we give ourselves. So why shouldn't it be joyful? Why shouldn't it be communal? Why shouldn't it be social? And I began to really notice a hole in what was going on on in the marketplace. It felt like there was a lot of white space there. So I began to look for something that would fill that hole for me. And I was taking classes at a gym with an instructor that I loved. And one day she said to me, and I kept saying to her, this could be different. This could be branded. This could feel like an experience. It could be a production. And one day she said to me, you know, there's a woman that takes my class at a different gym. You two should meet. She said she wants to start some sort of a fitness business too. And the crazy thing was that I met Elizabeth Cutler a couple of weeks later. We had lunch together. We were introduced by this mutual teacher of ours. We always say it was the best blind date that we'd ever been on. <laughs> and it was crazy because she had just moved from Colorado, also had the same experience hiking in the mountains with her friends. We are probably the two most different people that you will ever meet. And yet we had this really common vision. And I left lunch that day and I got into my cab and she said to me, okay, here's what's going to happen. You're going to research towels and I'm going to find real estate and I'm going to call you on Thursday. And sure enough, on Thursday morning, she called me and she had found a listing on Craigslist. It was an old dance studio in the back of a lobby and we went and looked at it. And five months later, SoulCycle was open. And when you really think about kind of what 
it was that was the origination of SoulCycle. It was Elizabeth and I built it for us. There was something that we really missed and we noticed the whole and we built it for ourselves. And, that, and that's really where it came from. And starting out, and I think I only recall this because I live on the Upper West Side, but that was West 72nd Street. Was that the first? Gosh, you and I are, you and I are destined to be friends. I live on the Upper West Side too. <laughs> there you go. I'm still on, I'm on 73rd, between 73rd and 74th now. And every, you know, I always love to um, tell anyone that that's like where SoulCycle originated. I think it's like a juice generation or something right now, but you still have, or had, they still have the one on, I guess, 76 or 77th and Amsterdam, but take me back. So when you were opening this and it was, you know, something that was completely such a need for, you know, as someone who's into wellness and especially I love community and classes, but take me back. How hard was it initially to get out there and brand it and to build it? Cause I assume you started this from, from scratch. So here's what's interesting. When we opened SoulCycle back in 2006, it's not that there just wasn't a soul cycle or a spin studio. There was no boutique fitness in New York. I mean, you have to picture. There were no online reservation systems. You had to actually go to a gym and sign a sheet of physical sheet. Yeah. Of paper. You had to get there an hour early to get a spot in a 40-minute class, right? So the entire experience wound up taking you twice as much time. No boutique fitness, big box gyms only. And really, it wasn't about how are we going to brand this? How are we going to create a better product? It was really about how are we going to create a category? How are we going to create a marketplace? How are we going to actually convince people to pay per class for something that's already on the buffet? And I'll never forget, I remember the first time the New York Times wrote an article about us. I had a five-month-old baby when we started SoulCycle. And I remember saying to my husband, like, you're going to have to watch the baby this morning because I'm going to go to the studio. The phones are going to be ringing off the hook. You won't be able to reach me today and whatever. And I went to the studio that morning that the, the article came out. And as you can imagine, maybe two or three people called because people couldn't wrap their head around why they would pay for something. They already belonged to a gym. So creating a brand and the experience was actually secondary to creating a whole marketplace. And, you know, I really like to think about the fact that we really helped build fitness as a lifestyle. Um, There was no Lululemon in New York when we came here. In fact, the Lulu girls had a showroom on the third floor, three blocks away, and we kind of built our businesses together, which is so interesting. But as we began to think about it, you know, as we began to think about what our experience would feel like, we really thought to ourselves, we looked to muses that were not fitness. We wanted the studio to feel like a luxury good. We wanted it to look like the White Cube Art Gallery in London. We began to think about what it would feel like if we spoke to you in a different way, in a way that was aspirational and inspirational rather than grind. Um, What would happen if you didn't have to compete with your neighbor, but instead you rooted for them, right? If we were all in this together rather than somebody winning on a leaderboard. What would that be like? And so it really, we really began to think about, you know, everything. I mean, everything from what it would, what it would smell like. I remember being in Elizabeth's apartment and we went to the bodega and we bought every kind of water and we looked at every 
everything from what the aesthetic of the bottle would look like in the holder to what they tasted like. And we really tried to make choices that we felt like were all about what this character would choose, right? You know, what she would be like at the time. Obviously, it was the height of sex in the city. And we, we, we decided that she would be sort of like a spiritual Carrie Bradshaw. She was human. She smoked on her stoop sometimes. And sometimes she went and worked out. But it was always better. For, she was always better for trying. And so we really felt like that's what this character was based on. And the other thing that I think was really important about building a brand was, you know, the most important thing for us and the real differentiator, I think, at SoulCycle, it was really always about how we made people feel. You know, for us, we were a people business. And the number one thing was making people feel like they mattered. We were lucky enough that very, very early on, uh, one of our first customers that stumbled in had left a very big job at Condé Nast and she fell in love with SoulCycle. And I remember her sending me an email, could she have a cup of coffee with me? And I I said to her, sure. And we had this coffee and she said, I'd like to come work at SoulCycle. This is really changing my life. And I said, the only person that works at SoulCycle, you know, are me and Elizabeth, we don't have any employees. She said, let me come in, let me help you um, figure out your PR strategy because she had done PR at Condé Nast. Anyway, I always say that I really don't remember the day that Amy um, started getting a paycheck because she came to work and she never left. But all this is to say that very early on, we had a chief culture officer. And as we were making choices, which were very much just a part of Elizabeth and I making gut decisions, you know, we would always look at each other and we would say we were lucky. I mean, we had no investors in SoulCycle. We started SoulCycle for $250,000. Elizabeth had made a small investment in a friend of hers that was an entrepreneur. Um, she had put $25,000 into the natural soda business, Izzy, which was her friend's business. And in fact, her friend had told her, absolutely, I can't take your money. And then he got a huge order from Whole Foods and said, I need your money. <laughs> and her, t- her 25 turned into 250, which is what we started SoulCycle for. And the great privilege and luxury of that was that For that money, we were able to build the front desk from Ikea. We were able to make 250 t-shirts, which was what we called marketing at the time. And we were able to make the right choices for the business. And for us, you know, those decisions were always about, you know, how we treated our customers and how we treated our employees. And so our chief culture officer would run around with a notepad following us saying, okay, front desk employees have the autonomy to give somebody their money back if they were unhappy. We remember everybody's name here. And from those things, I think really came the, the main thing about SoulCycle, which was that everybody just wants to matter. And we really began to codify a real hospitality training program around treating everybody like they were very, very important to us, which they were. More from our guests, but first, a word from our sponsors. As an entrepreneur in a digital world, every task I do is using some sort of web-based technology. This ranges from sending emails, scheduling meetings, to using a virtual task board. Zapier makes it easy for anyone to get started with business automation. No coding required. Easily connect with over 4,000 of the most popular apps businesses use every day, like Google Sheets, QuickBooks, and Facebook, or Google Ads, to automate almost any workflow imaginable. And with thousands of easy-to-use templates, you can get started fast. The average Zapier user saves over $10,000 in recovered time every year. No wonder over 1.8 million people and businesses use Zapier to streamline their work and find more time for what matters most. See for yourself why teams at Airtable, Dropbox, HubSpot, Zendesk, 
and thousands of other companies use Zapier every day to automate their businesses. Try Zapier for free today at zapier.com slash HSH. That's Z-A-P-I-E-R.com slash H-S-H. And our next sponsor. Hiring great employees and keeping them is part of the growth plan for your business. Trinet offers full service HR solutions tailored to small and medium sized businesses so you can retain talent and grow. We're talking access to top benefits, help with compliance and payroll, even when your team is remote or out of state, the works. Because Trinet gets it, your people matter to your business. Learn more about their HR solutions at trinet.com slash podcast. That's T-R-I-N-E-T dot com slash podcast. Trinet, incredible, starts here. And we're back. Thinking back, what do you think it was? Because for me, I always look at the biggest hump was you went to Reebok gym or you went to New York sports club and, oh, I can get this, you know, I they have a spin class there. They have this. What was it, do you think, that really started to turn people onto the fact that, you know what, boutique fitness, not just SoulCycle, but boutique fitness is the way to go as opposed to I'm going to join a gym and just take general classes? You know, the, the thing about boutique fitness versus, you know, a traditional gym is that the model is actually completely upside down. So fitness, group fitness at any big gym is actually a profit loss center. Mm-hmm. So big gyms offer group fit so that they can get you to personal train. It's just not what they do. And although a lot of it is actually pretty good, when you take someplace like SoulCycle or any other boutique fitness company, you know, that is the main source of revenue. And so those classes need to be excellent. Yeah. And I do think for us, you know, there was never a teacher that was filler. There was never a class that was just going to be okay. I mean, the way that we scouted, you know, recruited, trained and retained our teachers were an enormous part of our business, you know, really making them brand ambassadors who were engaged in their classes, not only during their classes. So I think that was a real differentiator in terms of the way that we thought about. In fact, when we when we decided to do a paper class model, everybody thought we were crazy. I mean, the greatest thing about a gym is you just take the credit card and you run it every month. But for us, you know, it really went back to that whole theater production mindset, which was that every time somebody crossed the threshold of our door, from remembering their name to what they experienced in that room until they left, we always thought of it as curtain up, curtain down. Yeah, I love that. Right? We were only as good as the last time time we you experienced soul cycle and so each time it was on us to create a real value and a real production for you and that is the way that we looked at it yeah and i love that because of your background in theater and and the experiential economy which was just starting to really rise at that time and that's what it's about because there is a huge difference between walking into a soul cycle class. And I'll just be honest, my Equinox like spin class now, or like, I just hate to say it, but you're right. And I pay for that because it's such an incredible experience. Was there a time at the beginning that you, you know, maybe said to Elizabeth or you thought, you know, this might not work or was there ever that time? 
I think as an entrepreneur, you can't think that. I don't think that you have the luxury to think that. I used to just think every day, we've got to make this work. And I also think for entrepreneurs, if that's not the way that you're thinking, <laughs> it's this a hard gig, you know? <laughs> uh, I think that's the way that you've got to think. You know, when you fall asleep at night, you're thinking about the ways that you're going to make it work, not what's not going to work about it. I mean, there were plenty of times that there were complete disasters. I mean, we did everything from, we soundproofed our, our first studio with the only $50,000 we had. And we thought the guy was going to be great because he told us he did porn studios oh. in Midtown. <laughs> you know, only to find out when he left and we wired the money that the cops oh. were coming every 30 seconds. We blew up our own website because yeah. we, rather than, than test our new website, we turned off one and turned on the other only to find that, you know, the new site didn't work and what we're we going to do about it? We made so many mistakes along the way, but I think that the truth about it was we always felt like we were going to make this happen. I mean, we had a very simple business model because we didn't know any better. Elizabeth and I look, looked at that first studio that day. We went across the street to Starbucks and we wrote on the back of the napkin that if we saw a hundred riders a day at 28 bucks a rider, we'd be able to pay for some childcare because we both had young kids. We'd be able to pay our employees and we'd be able to take a little bit home on the side. And that was our that was what we started with, you know, a hundred customers a day. And sort of the caveat for that was they didn't just need to be customers. They needed to be evangelists because we also didn't have any marketing money. So they had to come, they had to come back. And when they came back, they had to bring someone. Yeah. And that was kind of what it was. It wasn't just like, great, we got a customer. It was like, there were two more additional steps on top of that. And so that's the way we thought about it. And I never thought that there was time this wasn't going to happen. And SoulCycle happened quickly. We were profitable after a year. Uh, the signs were always there. I, I think that in the beginning, you were sort of explaining it to people and they were looking at like, you like you were crazy. My parents couldn't believe that I gave up a good job with health insurance. <laughs> My husband told me not to talk about that spinning thing when we went out <laughs> to dinner. But other than a few very close personal naysayers, uh, we, we always had the belief in it. Well, yeah, talk about evangelists, you know, and, and for me, I guess one of your early writers, uh, Deb Wasserman, got me and my family involved and, and just so many people that knowing her and then hearing about it. And then it was us spreading the word to other folks. And again, because it goes back to aspirational. And then years later, I see some of your instructors that they even coming out with their own books, you know, like it's just, it's pretty incredible what you, what soul cycle has meant in fitness, not just boutique fitness, but really just in fitness in general. I mean, it seems to me, there's so many, thank God coming back now after the pandemic boutique fitness, you know, facilities and not online, but it, it really is because of what you started. Well, what's so interesting is that, you know, when we started SoulCycle, we really thought what we were starting was a fitness company, but we quickly began to realize that it didn't have all that much to do with the fitness. It really had to do with the connection. Uh, and like you said about, you had a friend that brought you and somehow it was this community that was built by friends of friends. And pretty, pretty soon it was a place where people really felt like they mattered. They watched their city become a neighborhood, their neighborhood become a block. And I think as we scaled SoulCycle, we found the same thing. It was like, first, I, I could literally watch cities become neighborhoods, then neighborhoods become blocks. As I began to 
you know, put soul cycles all over the country. What I would be at gates at airports and I would see one person wearing a wheel at one gate, one person wearing a wheel at the other, and them kind of looking at each other and being like, yeah, I got you, you know, we're yeah. all in this. And I think that really what we began to find pretty quickly after we opened was that people came for fitness, but what they stayed for was the connection, you know, the connection to themselves, the empowerment that they felt in their own bodies, and then also the connection that they felt to other people, which is something that people really, really needed then. And I I think need even more now, but it was really a human experience. It wasn't a fitness experience. And I think that's, that's what we learned pretty quickly. Oh yeah. There's for sure. That is what you created. And I think what's happened with a lot of other boutique fitness communities. And, you know, you said something prior that I love, you said, you know, you, you were not going to, you couldn't think like this. You weren't going to make, this wasn't going to fail. And I want to ask you going, where does that resiliency, because I think that's the number one thing within any entrepreneur picking themselves off the mat, but for you personally, where, where does that come from? Does that come from childhood? Does that come from the tough streets of Ardsley? Where, where did you? <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny because I actually would not consider myself a wildly secure person. But interestingly enough, I do think that, you know, as an entrepreneur, especially this is another thing I always do tell entrepreneurs, I really do believe that you have to love what you're creating in the same way that you love a child. I have two daughters. One is 11 and one is 17. And I always say in between, I had cycle. And I really do. I really did have three children. In fact, when we sold SoulCycle, it was a real mourning period for me. Everybody was sort of celebrating, you know, the financial success of it all. And I just kept thinking, you know, where should I go on Monday? It really was like selling a child. And so I do think that it's, you know, having a passion around the actual what you're creating. I don't think that I could have been so resilient, you know, selling shoes. For me, this was really something that I, it's part of Elizabeth, it's part of me, and it was something we were meant to put out into the world. I think that that's part of it. I was just thinking, because what you said was pretty amazing. You know, it's like you woke up that next day and the the financial, and I, I find this with a lot of entrepreneurs, that was incredible and great, but how did you pick yourself up and move on, you know, after selling it? Did you stay there? Did you end up going into another business? Because it seemed like you just said, like, you were having so much fun. This was a child, you know, like that's hard. How hard was that on you, you know, mentally? Yeah, it was really probably the hardest decision I've ever made in my life to sell this company, just because also it was this, as you can imagine, you know, 350 instructors, 2000 employees, you know, I'm, I'm the theater producer of a lifetime, you know, we're, produ- we're producing yeah. hundreds of mini shows a day. I'm a real people person. I love chaos. I love collaboration. Sort of being in the middle of all of it was a huge thrill for me. Uh, so yeah, so leaving was really tough. But the one thing I will say, and this actually was what I wanted to say also in terms of the resilience. I have been lucky enough to have two phenomenal partners in my life. The first being my husband and the second being Elizabeth Cutler, my business partner. We've been partners now for 16 years. We're we're in the middle of our, our second business together. We invest together. I mean, we are really a different type of soulmates. And what I will say is that choosing a partner that is very different than you is an excellent choice because the things that would have me laying on the floor thinking, we're done, this is over, were no biggie for her. And vice versa. And so 
it always kind of worked out. You know, the things that I thought were tragic, she was able to keep up, pick us up and keep marching through and vice versa. And I will say that really was an enormous way for us to have resilience. Elizabeth is also a really wonderful entrepreneur. I always say I'm a very hard worker and she's a very good entrepreneur. She's a great risk taker. She is really able to make very difficult decisions under pressure. And I think having a partner like that also really helps when you have another person person that has extreme moral conviction by your side, obviously it makes it that much easier. And I think that also sort of comes full circle to when it came to leaving. I think leaving together uh, made it a lot easier for us to go. I, I said to her the day that we were leaving, it was our last Friday in the office. I said, okay, I think that I can do this as long as you and I have a room somewhere with two desks that we can go to and order lunch together on Monday. <laughs> If, that's, if we're going to be in a room together somewhere, that's okay with me then. And that honestly really also was what, what helped help me, just having a great partner by my side and knowing that, that partnership was intact. And then to answer your question, what did I do next? Did I get another job? I went to work at WeWork. <laughs> <laughs> another uh, big company. So what quickly, What because uh, I want to get to your business now, but what was that like just and how long did that experience last? And give us the quick 411 on, on your experience during that time. For me, it actually was a lot of fun in many ways. First of all, you know, I had left a very, you know, fast moving, scaling quickly, fast paced startup myself. And so in an odd way to go do this, you know, without such a huge attachment, because it wasn't my child, but still yeah. be in the middle of this, of this chaotic craziness was kind of fun. I will tell you that it was an incredible learning experience. I think that there are only a handful of companies that this generation will see you know, that grew at the pace of an Uber, an Amazon, a WeWork. And so for me, it was a different type of business degree. I got to see, you know, scale and a sure. global level. We were opening 50 buildings a month during the time that I was there. I went there with one title. I had six other titles within the two years that I was there. And all of it was, you know, it was everything that you would picture. It was chaos. It was craziness. It was ups. It was downs. But there were a ton of smart people and I really did learn a lot. And at the end of it, for me, it was it was a really interesting experience. Yeah, it sounds like it's an incredible education. Must have been such an incredible venture. It is nice once you do sell your business and go somewhere that uh, and just some of those things you must have fretted about every day at SoulCycle and had to watch, especially as the theater producer, just having a little bit of relief from that. I would imagine that was actually enjoyable. But I want to I want to talk about what you're doing now. And if you can Tell me about Peoplehood and exactly what the company does in you know regards to facilitating guided conversations and how you got into this and just if you could give absolutely. Us so look, you know, like I was I was saying to you before, you know, I think what we really understood at SoulCycle was that the product really was about connection and about the way that people were able to connect with each other. And what we learned was that, you know, when people were in those dark rooms with the music playing and an instructor telling them they could be more than they thought that they could be, people really felt like they wanted to be better. They wanted to articulate feelings to people around them. They wanted to connect differently with people in the room and then people in their lives. And yet, you know, a couple of hours later, when the endorphins have gone away, yeah. people don't necessarily have the skills to do that. I think that 
you know, we spend so much time investing in our intellectual educations in terms of, you know, making sure that our physical bodies are in shape. And yet we devote very little time, intentional time to our relationships with ourselves and other people. And Elizabeth and I were lucky enough while we were at SoulCycle to work with a great coach who really taught us how to communicate with each other differently. And we taught all of that to our organization. And so our employees really walked away with incredible communication skills. I think it was absolutely what made the organization such a great place to work. And they, in turn, were able to use those skills communicating with our customers. And I also had done some great work with a couple of marital therapists who really also helped my husband and I to change the dynamic of the way that we had conversation with each other. And so, you know, a couple of years after SoulCycle, we began to think about what does the world need? And it really feels like where 15 years ago, you, you needed to sell fitness and connection was a byproduct. Today, it feels like connection is just the product. I mean, we can see, especially post-COVID, loneliness yeah. is obviously an incredible epidemic. Um, there's not enough mental health, mental health help out there for people. And yet what's really interesting is it's really a social health crisis. People are isolated and people don't know how to find friends. And then people don't actually know how to exist in the relationship that they also have. And so what do we have out there in between nothing and crisis? You wouldn't wait until you had a heart condition to get on a soul cycle bike. And it's the same sort of thing with your relational health. You know, why do we need to wait until we're wildly unhappy? Why shouldn't we live fulfilled lives? Why shouldn't we feel connected to ourselves and the people around us? And so we have come up with a new experience, which we're calling relational fitness, the 60 minute conversation experience. And it's a guided group conversation where people get a chance to talk and to listen and to support each other. And it's a place where you can really grow because you can feel heard by other people. And you can also feel generous because you're supporting other people. The practice is really based in active listening, which is really the thread that we we saw run through everything. You know, we, we've spent two and a half years working with researchers and professors and wow. priests and rabbis and AA leaders and yeah. scientists. And really the common thread that runs through all of these practices is that none of us really know how to listen to each other. We just don't know how to give each other the space that we each need. And it seems really simple, but yet for whatever reason, we're always there to give advice or opinions or tell each other, well, this is what I think, yeah. rather than just really trying to get somebody else's world. And so we have come up with this experience, which is actually a lot of fun. There's music, there's breath work, as you can imagine. There's a great guy that feels somewhat like a soul cycle instructor. You know, they're sharing their stories with you. And so it really opens the room up. And people are really walking away saying that they're having incredible aha moments. It's giving them time to process their own thoughts. They're leaving feeling better than when they walked in. Uh, we've just, we've definitely designed the experience that you, you know, you have moments to really, you know, get deep with yourself, but we also try to leave you feeling uplifted. People are nervous to come, but once they do, they feel like, wow, this is something I should make time for all the time. And I think like any other habit, we really are thinking about it as a practice. You know, sometimes we all think like, oh, I need to go away on a retreat and, you know, do meditation for a weekend. Or, But the thing is, that's not sustainable. It's like eating green vegetables or going for a run. We need to do them often to build habits. 
And so that's what peoplehood is. Peoplehood is a one hour that you can put into your week. It's a digital experience. And we're also getting ready to build our first New York location, this time in Chelsea. So both will launch in the fall. The digital experience will open in the fall. We're, we're in beta right now. And our New York location will open in the fall too. So I'll be back behind a front desk, my happy place. Yes, hopefully with Elizabeth and uh, you know, a place you guys can both have lunch. And uh, <laughs> we're already there. <laughs> <laughs> it does sound incredible and incredible time, you know, just like with Soul Cycle. And I think what people in the world were craving at that point with that connection and fit, and especially coming out of this pandemic, which I don't even think we've started to see kind of the mental health issues that are really taking place and what people need from all that isolation. So I think perfect timing again, right on top of things. And before I let you go, I I wanted to ask you, you know, we have a lot of people who listen, who are entrepreneurs. There's people who are sitting at companies who have these great ideas that, you know, they need to jump off the diving board. But if you were to give a piece of advice to our listeners who are kind of thinking about starting a business, is there anything you could say that might be helpful? Definitely. Well, I can say that as a second time entrepreneur, it feels even harder this time than it was last time. So I can tell you what I think to myself every day, which is that, you know, small steps lead to very big dreams. And I find that after having a successful business once before, I now have this big, huge vision of what success looks like, something I couldn't have even pictured before. And a lot of times it's really overwhelming because all I can think about is how I'm going to get to global scale. I didn't even know what global scale was before. And I just remember um, thinking about the way that we started SoulCycle, which was, you know, I used to make a list every day of three things that I had to get done. And if I could get those three tangible things done, it would move me to the next day and the next day would move me to the next. And those small steps definitely lead to big dreams happening. And I think that taking a risk is really, really hard. But when you have tangible things in front of you, when you have small bites you can take, somehow it feels a lot less overwhelming than just looking at the end. I love that. And Julie, thank you so much for joining us on How Success Happens. Such great stuff and wishing you the best of luck. I am sure your new business is going to crush it. It just seems like perfect timing again. And thanks for coming on How Success Happens. Awesome. Thank you for having me. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman. that's R-O-B-E-R-T, T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.